This week's episode is brought to you by K16 Solutions. Whether you need help migrating course content to a new LMS platform or are looking for a more affordable way to archive student data, visit k16solutions.com to learn more about their migration and archiving solutions. That's k16solutions.com. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we explore the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor of EdSurge. We're a national nonprofit newsroom covering how education is changing. Freeman Herbowski is a college president who's long fought for civil rights and racial justice. When he was 12 years old, he marched with Martin Luther King Jr. in Birmingham, Alabama, his hometown, and got arrested. Such protests in the 60s were crucial, he says, but largely symbolic. For most of Herbowski's long career, he says he has been trying to, quote, move the needle in a more concrete way to increase the number of African-Americans in STEM fields. Herbowski is a president of a public university. It's the University of Maryland at Baltimore County. He has led the place for nearly 30 years now. And one of his signature programs there is called the Meyerhoff Scholars Program. Its goal is to help more minority students major in STEM fields and finish. The program is a proven success. A 2019 article in the journal Science found, in fact, that no other major university has achieved similar outcomes when it comes to retaining diverse students in STEM fields. That means the program literally has the best results in the country. And its alums are becoming leaders in their fields. Uh, Just recently, a former Meyerhoff scholar, Kismikia Corbett, helped create one of the COVID vaccines that is getting this pandemic under control. And she was named to Time Magazine's Next 100 list of innovators. But even this hugely successful program has limits to how much it can do all by itself. Sure, it's graduated hundreds of students, but it is just one place. And the challenge of bringing diversity to STEM fields is huge. Here's what it looks like. Right now, only about 2% of the PhDs in the U.S. in science and tech fields are going to African Americans each year. Just 2%. So these days... Herbowski is working harder than ever to promote his model, to share the secret sauce. And big-name colleges are adopting it, including the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and Penn State. For this week's Ed Surge podcast, I connected with Dr. Herbowski to talk about his long quest and why today is such a critical moment in the fight to diversify sciences and tech. If you've ever heard him speak, maybe on his TED Talk or, or had the chance to meet him in person— you know that he's a dynamic and upbeat person. And he has been a force. Time Magazine once named him one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. Here's my conversation with Freeman Robowski. One of your key focuses has been on encouraging and supporting more minority students in STEM fields. I'm wondering, could you take us back to when you first started at UMBC and talk about why you viewed that as a key problem you wanted to solve and how you saw the problem when you were first starting out in this work? Sure. I've always seen the problem is very personal in the sense that that uh, throughout school in general, I from K through 12 on, I found that most people did not like math and science. 
And in, in elementary school, especially, and even in high school, when the teacher would turn her back, kids would start doing other things. They were not really into the work so often. Uh, and I just thought this was great stuff, this math. And I wanted more students to, to enjoy the experience of solving problems using mathematics. And as I got older, I realized math was at the base of much of what we do in science and engineering. Uh, and, and when I went to grad school at Illinois, I typically was the only black in the class and never saw a black professor in STEM ever. And uh, was very fortunate at my beloved Hampton to see some black and some white professors. But when I went to grad school, there was no one in, in among the professoriate. And quite frankly, when you go to universities today, most will not, particularly research universities, will not have a black on the faculty. So it was always seeing the need to do that. But I also realized when I was uh, in grad school and beyond that it wasn't just about blacks not doing well in math and science or being attracted to it. But it was in general that most Americans don't think of math and science as something for themselves. So as I talked about moving to UMBC and looking at the challenges, it was not just the black students who were not doing well. The university founded was founded at the time that blacks could go there in the 60s, but it's always been predominantly white until recently when it's maybe half minority, half white. But the fact is that students in general were not doing well in science and engineering, and that is a national issue. And so our emphasis has been on creating a culture that would help students, both women and men, people of all races, to have a great chance of succeeding in science and engineering. And the Meyerhoff program came out of that wish to do just that. You know, why do you feel like that matters? And you say it's personal, but also like, you know, what what does this diversity mean to the country? Yes, we need, and I should say, Bob Meyerhoff, who was trained as an engineer at MIT, as a very strong businessman, from the beginning was interested in doing something to help young black males because he said everything he saw in black males was on TV, if it was not about sports, was negative and involved handcuffs, guns or whatever. And he had already done some programs to focus on women. And he said, this is a group that really needs support. We married those two ideas of helping young black men first and uh, increasing the number of minorities in science uh, and had some emphasis on understanding the issues of black men. And I should tell you, it was black women who were very pleased we were doing that because there was nothing on that group. Uh, and, and as a result, we've had a chance to think about the issues. And here's the point to answer your question. If people don't see professionals in disciplines looking like themselves, whether it's public health or medicine or engineering, they will tend to think this is not for me. We saw that during COVID, this COVID crisis. We saw if they didn't have examples of, of people of color who were physicians or, or scientists, we need to see people from different backgrounds, young women, young people of color, blacks, Latinos and others, so that children and their families will say, maybe this is something my kid would want to do. And so that we can have more trust. Because what we saw during COVID was numbers of people of color and others who did not trust the science, did not trust the scientists, because often they didn't see people looking like themselves. And that's just not people of color, first generation college people. If you've never had people to go to college in your family, you've never seen a family member become a scientist or a doctor, you might think, well, is this really for our group? Can we trust what they're saying? So diversity of thought, diversity of people regarding race and gender and LGBTQ, all these areas will mean that more people trust the work that's being done. And we need that. So over the years, you've developed this model through the Meyerhoff Scholars Program. And I know there are a lot of components to it, um, but 
I, I'm curious what you see as the key ingredients for making the program work. Sure. You know, I, I have a TED Talk that does well. People either like it or they hate it, but they do watch it. And it's called Four Pillars of College Success in Science. And the TED Talk is based on broad themes in the MARA program. And the four pillars are these high expectations, not just of the students, but of the faculty, of the staff. All right. Number two, building community so that it's not cutthroat, so that people work to help each other. Number three, and really important, it takes researchers to produce researchers or scientists to produce scientists. I would say or artists to produce artists, whatever the, the discipline, having that apprenticeship program, that, that lab experience, that internship can pull people into the work. And so scientists to produce scientists and finally rigorous evaluation. And that's when you think about Meyerhoff, it is understanding basic foundation skills that students will need to succeed. It is about creating a culture of welcoming them there, but it's about the high expectations. And I, I can't say enough about that. Both of students that being prepared to work very hard, to work with other people, to listen to its, its advice, but of our colleagues as we've worked on course redesign and figuring out other ways to help more students succeed. We too often just want to put it on the students rather, rather than saying we have a responsibility. You probably know that we call the first year or two of science in America weed out courses in science and engineering because most Americans of all races leave science unhappy in the first year or two. So much so, I chaired the National Academy's Committee on Underrepresentation in Science. Um, it doesn't surprise people that only 20% of blacks and Latinos who, who start off with a major in science and engineering graduate with a bachelor's in those areas. But people are shocked to learn only 32% of whites and only 41% of Asians. And when people say, well, it's because they don't have a strong high school background, that's just not the only reason or the main reason. The fact is that even well-prepared students of every race who begin in science often leave it usually because they don't do well in the first couple of courses. If you get AIDS and everything else on a C in chemistry or engineering, you're going to say it's not for me. And we see large percentages. And the result is, quite frankly, that only about 5% of American graduates um, are in the natural sciences and engineering. In Europe, it's almost 11%. And we know what's happening in Asia, in China, and in India. So we need more people well-prepared in these STEM disciplines for our health issues, for the intelligence community, when thinking about broad areas involving statistics and data science. You know, in all these areas, we need more people prepared, just as we need large numbers prepared in humanities and social sciences. Now, I understand there's a summer program that's really key. Yeah, it's called Bridge, the Bridge Program, and um, it's like a boot camp. And they are learning how to work with each other. Because in American high schools, we teach kids too often that if they're working together, they're cheating. We often, you know, the assignments are to be done by the one person only. It's rare that we have a lot of group work. And yet in real science, in real life, in fact, regardless of the discipline, people work in teams. Whatever they're doing, they work to feed off of each other. We don't teach that soon enough. We're teaching them, as we do for UMBC students in general, the importance of working in teams and learning how to prepare to work in that group. Perhaps the most controversial part of that program, where they're learning math and science and something in culture, um, is that we take their phones away during the week. That is the most controversial part. I've gotten more hate mail when that was said on the 60 Minutes piece, that we take their phones away during periods, um, people wrote me saying, how dare you do that? This is America. You can't take someone's phone away. But uh, what they don't know is it was uh, the last group of students uh, that said, if you want the students to get to know each other well, 
and to get beyond the high school ties, take their phones away so they work together and they depend on each other rather than on people external to the program. And it's worked superbly. It really has. And if you think about it, most of us would really have a hard time going without a cell phone for two days. So when you think about that going throughout the week without it, it is, it is a shock. It is a shock, but it has a way of building confidence in their ability to go without a phone, but also confidence in learning how they can work with each other effectively and become a family, which is very important. After the break, we talk with a graduate of this Meyerhoff Scholars program to hear what it's like. And I asked Dr. Hrabowski how he sees today's push for diversity compared to those protests back in the 60s. Stay with us. What do Northeastern University, Rutgers, Wake Forest University, CSU Fullerton, and St. Mary's University of Minnesota all have in common? Well, they and dozens of other institutions around the globe have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to their new LMS. Gone are the days of burdening faculty with manually moving LMS content or paying for a white glove service. Both options are archaic, riddled with errors requiring a tremendous amount of course reconstruction, and both are manual processes. Introducing Scaffold by K16 Solutions. Scaffold is a revolutionary product that allows you to move online content from one LMS to another in real time, capturing details such as course structure, quizzes, tests, and even question pools using sophisticated but simple automation. Scaffold replaces what used to be a manual resource-intensive operation, transforming LMS course migration into a quick, accurate, and affordable process. Most importantly, scaffold migration requires little to no manual intervention by faculty, staff, or anyone else. To learn more about K16 Solutions automated LMS migration solutions, visit k16solutions.com. That's k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode. So that's the basic vision for this program to support diverse students in STEM fields. And we'll have more to that interview with Freeman Rabowski in a few minutes. But this model only really came to life for me when I talked with a program's alum. I called up Lola Eniola Adefesco, who these days is a professor of chemical engineering, biomedical engineering, and macromolecular science engineering at the University of Michigan. Oh, and she's associate dean for graduate and professional education there. She joined the Meyerhoff Scholars Program as a junior, since she was transferring to UMBC from a community college. I asked her what it felt like when she first stepped into the program. I was going to my first Meyerhoff family meeting, as they called it back then, and probably still now, for the first time as a junior um, in, in, uh, at UMBC. And I have to tell you, it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. It was the first time I walked in a room and a bunch of students studying STEM <laughs> were all African-Americans. That was an incredible sight. It was the first time I laid eyes on uh, Freeman Rabowski, who's also African-American, and finding out that he was leading this as president, the wonderful uh, UMBC. It was an overwhelming feeling, and I, I and I remember distinctly crying before the end of that family meeting. It was the first time that I felt like being a college student was not about necessity, right? Meaning I need to go to college so I can get a good job so that I can get out of whatever situation financially that I that I am right now, family wise. 
it was a, it, it became a switch to education is an opportunity for me to dream and that's okay that dreams are allowed and in fact this program is telling me that exactly is what they want me doing is dreaming big uh, so that was a transition point i don't know that i would be here without that interaction and that first exposure to a family meeting was, had a big impact wow and when you say dream I, i'm just i want to just make sure you know i'm hearing you in that so you were, it's obvious that you were working hard and doing amazing work and, and succeeding, but this changed your mindset, it sounds like, to to be thinking even bigger? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I grew up with a father who, he was an engineer but by, by profession, but not by training, if that makes sense. But he told wonderful stories about the world. We talked about stars and things of that nature, but I never made that connection to education, that education is a means to pursue the questions that you dream about and having answers to, right? For me, you know, again, because I, I, I'm coming up from high school, I'm in a situation where financially wasn't well off, so we, I had to work. Uh, I started at working at McDonald's. And so education be, became the my ticket out of working, not, you know, those kinds of uh, jobs, which are great when you're 16, but it's not something you can sustain your lifetime on. And so dreaming was not part of that. I did not connect education to this ability to learn, if that makes sense to you. And it was really only in that moment of hearing as a college student that I should hold fast to my dreams because without dreams, life is like a broken winged bird that cannot fly. It was a powerful visual for me. And I think all of a sudden this notion of you could go to graduate school and you could do research and discover the unknowns to me, that is the color of dream when it comes to education. I would not be in that space if not for the, that moment and, and those interactions. What other concrete, you know, kind of um, activities and supports did you receive through the program over the years? Once I became full uh, member of the program, I think the co-op meetings were wonderful because it brings together your peers, people that look like you. And, you know, I, I always had the ability to be a top student in any of my classes. I just never had the motivation to do so. Uh, and in fact, when I was in community college, there were some of my classes that really, you know, I didn't have an understanding that it was important to get an A. I could get an A. I just didn't understand why I needed to, right? Uh, and so be, having that co those co-op meetings at the Meyerhoff program where you're seeing your peers and you're all sharing practices actually is very powerful in terms of bringing out the best in each of us, right? Pushing us to be where we actually, uh, the ability uh, to. The other piece is Meyerhoff, being part of that program gives you this <laughs> street credibility. It's almost like, you know, if you had a version of white privilege, there was the Meyerhoff privilege that I walked into a classroom and my 
instructor immediately goes, oh, you're a Meyerhoff scholar. You're probably going to be one of my A students. And that is powerful because you hear that and all of a sudden you want to live up to that ideal, right, to that expectation. And so my performance in my courses shot up because I was now motivated to, to achieve, at least to, to maximize my abilities in those classrooms. And I didn't have the uh, doubt because I just heard from an instructor that I'm going to be their A student, right? And so you get that sort of privilege that does then feed into your performance. Uh, and, and, you know, the there's just this peer support in terms of working together homework and really also the the helping us understand the the structure of higher ed right I, before the Meyerhoff program i had no idea what a master's degree was or a phd degree I, I just didn't have any place to learn about those things and applying to graduate school how do you get letters of support I had no frame of reference for any of those, and I would not have had uh, those things and done them uh, correctly if I had not been part of the Meyerhoff program. So that support for many of us that at the time were first generation, um, college grad, first generation to go to graduate school, this program really uh, made it possible for us. And of course, the connection to summer research programs uh, nationally uh, was uh, uh, incredible. So this program at UMBC, it seems special. And Freeman Herbowski has clearly made its success a personal mission. And for some, that raises the question, is it a model that other campuses can do? Or is it this president's unique force of will that has got it going? It's a great question. The, the, the criticism we received for years was, well, it's because you've got a black president there and Freeman has an interest in these things. And I've always said, no, any leader of any race can help minority students if he or she has the commitment. And the presidents of Chapel Hill and Penn State just did just that. They showed that interest. The Howard Hughes Foundation uh, and the president there of the foundation, Aaron, they were wonderful in saying we want to replicate Meyerhoff. And Michael Summers, who is a wonderful professor, Howard Hughes investigator, member of the National Academies um, and white has been the lead person. I say that on purpose because most scientists who are at the top are still white men. And white men need to know that you can do a, a great job in helping women and people of color to succeed, that we need their help. It can't just be minorities helping minorities, no, or men helping men. And Mike Summers has led the replication effort with funding from Howard Hughes at Chapel Hill and at Penn State. And we now have an article in Science that shows over a number of years the success of those students in those programs. We're now replicating out at Berkeley and Chapel Hill, excuse me, Berkeley and University of California, San Diego, with funding from Chan Zuckerberg. The fact is that it is about looking at the culture of the campus, getting faculty to be involved. One of the problems with minority programs is often it's wonderful minority staff who are running them, but you don't have the people with the real power, the professors, directly connected to the program. And that's one of the key elements as we have been replicating the programs. Who are the tenured faculty who will take ownership of this challenge on the campus? And it's made a big difference. No, it's so interesting. And and yeah, we'll link to that science article in our in our show notes. So people should go to, go to EdSearch to find that. 
as many people have talked to you about before, you, you've been a longtime activist for civil rights and fighting against racial oppression. In fact, you were famously arrested, I believe, as a teenager for participating in protests down in Birmingham where you grew up. I, I wonder, in this time we're in now, if you could put today's period of activism around anti-racism into some context, like how, how do you see this moment as different than, say, the the 1960s. Sure. I, first of all, we see I see these periods as as very similar in terms of where our country is in thinking about these issues. We are very divided now, and we were very divided then. People forget that uh, unfortunately, President Kennedy couldn't get things through Congress just because we were so divided. It took a Southerner, Lyndon Johnson to get the Civil Rights Act passed and then the Higher Education Act and the Voting Rights Act. So we were there then. Here we are now, still talking about, now again, back with the Voting Rights Act and talking about racism. Uh, And so those are similar periods as you think about them, just as the 1860s, another period of division in in this thinking and right before Reconstruction. And, And I tell you that because today, the one difference I see is that we, we fully do appreciate and have learned from the 1960s that the protests, the marching can have great significance symbolically. But the real question is always, after the marches, then what? I was fortunate to march with Dr. King at 12 and go to jail. And all of that was symbolically important to shed light on the issue. But then the real work begins. And the real work involves everything from legislation to policy changes to the voting. And that's where we are right now as we think about ways of making sure people do get the chance to vote as voters know the information and understand the importance of listening to evidence, right? And as we think about how to pull people together to find the common ground. This is the issue from the 1960s, from the 1860s, and from today. As we look at how can we find common ground And what I would say is one part of that common ground can be found through educating more people. Most of us don't realize that only about a third of Americans have anyone in their family who has graduated from college. Think about that. And when we hear people saying they don't believe in college, um, find me college educated families that don't want their children to go to college. We have more people wanting to go to college than ever from people who've had this experience because they know that's how you get a good job. That's how you become a responsible citizen. It's that college experience, and that's the four-year, but also people who have the community college experience. They get that experience also. But the fact is, the majority of Americans of all races have not had that experience. So to me, education and higher education are more critical now than ever. And when I think about math skills, I think about thinking skills, just as I think about writing and English as critical thinking and the ability to solve problems, all those things go together. So for me, and as as an educator, I'm saying what we do is more important now than ever. And it's not just access to higher education, it must be success. Because you can let people in and yet half the people who come in don't make it, don't succeed. Uh, and they have more debt than ever before. So we've got to think about access and success in in education and higher education more now than ever before. Yeah. And I, I wonder, compared to the 30 years ago when you started at UM, UMBC, um, and, you know, how, how do you think we're doing on these issues you've been championing? You know, how, how far do you feel like we've come as a nation and, and where do you see the next steps? Right. I, if, if people appreciate the fact that when I marched in the 60s, early 60s, only 
10% of Americans had graduated from college. It was only three or four, 10% in total, three or 4% of blacks, uh, 11% of whites, and everything was in black and white. Today, of course, we break it down. We look at the Latino population, Native American. Latinos today, Latinx population, about 15% have graduated from college. And they're the fastest growing group in our country. Um, uh, for whites, we're up to about 38% who've graduated from college. For blacks, it's, it's about 25%. For Native Americans, it's below la, la, Latino population. So altogether, still two-thirds have not. So, But we have made progress. If you look at each of those groups, we've made progress. Even for whites, from 11 to 38%, right? But the key is we've got to have more people. We've got to support more people in graduating. In science and engineering, um, when I chaired the Commission on Underrepresentation in STEM in science 10 years ago in 2011, only 2% of the PhDs awarded in America were going to blacks. Two point, in fact, 2.2% to be precise. Today, the most recent data will tell you it's from 2.2% to 2.3%. In other words, we still haven't gotten to 3% of the PhDs in our country going to blacks. If you look at all the national agencies, you'll see that usually under 2% are black. If you look at the Hispanic population with all the different Hispanic groups, you're still only at 3 or 4%, not quite 5%. Do you see that as discouraging? Well, let's say this. I see it as challenging, as challenging. I say we don't have time to be discouraged. We have to do more. We have to do more. And we've seen examples. UMBC now leads the country in producing blacks who get STEM PhDs. They get a bachelor's from us. They go on to Stanford or or Harvard or MIT, wherever, uh, or uh, amazing places around the country uh, to get the PhD, and then they're going on faculty, they're going to work at places, they're starting companies. So there are examples that can be very encouraging of students who are completing PhDs. But when talking about moving the needle, we have much more to do. And I know the heads of the national agencies are aware of this. The reason bringing up Dr. Corbett was so important is that during this period, we have had light shining on the infrastructure, the science medicine, public health infrastructure of our country. And in some ways, we were seeing primarily white men and a few women. But we didn't see large numbers of people of color at a time when we needed people of color and others to trust what we were doing. It made the point. By the way, the the last Surgeon General was Meyerhoff, was one of our graduates, in fact, had been health commissioner in Indiana. Very proud of him, of Dr. Jerome Adams. But we need many more examples. The health commissioner in Baltimore City is one of our graduates. We're very proud of that. But these are just examples. So we have to go from being inspired by the examples, the anecdotes, to then looking at the focus and the, the, the data to say, but have we made enough progress overall? And, and the answer is a resounding no. We have not made the progress that we must make given the increasingly diverse population in our country and given our work with other countries and the competition as we see it. All you need to do is look at the hacking issues that occur. You know, that, that's STEM. That is, they're ethical issues, of course, humanities, but technically it's STEM. You know, we're very proud of our cyber dogs. That has a name for you. The cyber dogs are the, the team of cyber expert students. We were the national champions several years ago. This year we won the regional and we're going back next year for the national. But many of my students work at the National Security Agency. So they get that experience. We need, But we need the same kind of excitement about winning uh, in cyber dogs as we got when we won the UVA uh, basketball game and became the first number 16 seed to be the number one seed in NCAA. The world talked about us. They need to be. We need people ex- as excited about cyber 
as we are about basketball. Or this year, we were the national champions in mock trial. We beat Yale. Well, why is that so important? A middle-class public place was number one beating a very fine and prestigious and rich place, Yale. That's huge in America. And yet the amount of publicity you get is minimal at most. We need to be saying to working class and middle class Americans, you can be the very best, whether in STEM or in mock trial. That, that is our message. Going back to STEM for a minute, what do you think, you know, you've gotten a lot of attention for your, for your program over the years and had all the success and, and some replication that we talked about, but but as far as the needle not moving very much in that in the meantime, what do you what are some factors that you think have led to that? Why haven't more programs come about like this, and why haven't more, you know, why has the number not moved more in your view over these decades? It is the ineluctable question. I mean, you're absolutely right. We need a laser focus on on what works. So, in several articles and issues in science and technology, my my co-authors and I say if we took the top 30 institutions in producing black bachelors and producing Latino bachelors who go on to get PhDs. And we double those numbers, just double from those campuses. We would, we would move the needle for all PhDs in the country by 25 plus percent. Mm. We would literally, if we could just double the numbers from the top producers right now, that's just one strategy that could make such a difference. Another strategy would be to take what Howard Hughes is doing in replicating Meyerhoff and do it at 25, 30 campuses. Again, the opportunity to take the numbers to the next level. One of the challenges in public policy is we just keep giving out money to new things and trying new things all the time. Yeah, I, I, I'm probably, I mean, honestly, journalists write about the new things more often than the old things, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's very much so. I, I, I'm very proud of... Um, I'll run Daniels at Hopkins. We're working with them. They've, they've got a big grant from Bloomberg to increase the number of, of people of color, blacks and others uh, in PhDs in their Hopkins programs. And we work with them already, but they've, they've connected with several of us, including some of the HBCUs. We are what's called a minority serving institution. We've always been predominantly white, but now we have enough people of color and Asians over a third that we're called minority serving institution. The biggest minority group on my campus actually is Asian. Um, and then we do have about not quite 20% who are black, but we are an MSI is the term. And, uh, but they are working with us to, to build those pipelines. That's another focus program that has great promise. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for this time. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Jeff. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we are here with new episodes just like this one. Make sure to catch all of those by subscribing to the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please take a minute to leave a rating or a review. That actually helps us. Um, I know it's actually kind of a hidden feature on some of the, it's like kind of a hard to get to on some of these podcast apps, but on Apple Podcasts, if you navigate to our show page, which is actually takes a couple clickings, consider it a challenge, and you scroll all the way down, you will see a place to give us five stars um, or write in a review. And please tell a friend about the show. And you can sign up now for our weekly newsletter, for the Ed Surge podcast and get it in your inbox every time we come out. Just go to edsurge.com, look at the top right, click on newsletters, and you will see a link to get into the Ed Surge podcast newsletter. This episode was created by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at JR Young. We'll be back next week with more. In fact, next week, we are planning to bring you the next episode of our Bootstraps podcast series on merit, myth, and education. 
We found plenty of surprising material. I'm really excited to bring that episode to you. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. <laughs>